Welcome to Tiski Sour on a Friday night. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm very well, very happy to be joining you. I'm very happy to be joining our viewers and listeners. We have lots of very, very meaty stories today. We are going to talk about the current claims and counterclaims pertaining to biolabs and chemical weapons and false flags. We're also going to talk about the Azov Battalion and how we on the left should relate to the far right in a country who are fighting a just war. All very complicated, all very nuanced, although the politics of the Azov Battalion are not nuanced, don't get me wrong. And we do have a section about how the Ukraine will affect the British economy and how Rishi Sunak and Tory politicians are trying to use that to their advantage. Politicians in America and Britain have been warning this week that Russia may be setting the stage to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. The concern was raised after Russian leaders began accusing the West of the same thing. A spokesperson for Russia's defense ministry has warned that secret labs in Ukraine exist and said... The purpose of this and other Pentagon-funded biological research in Ukraine was to establish a mechanism for the stealthy spread of deadly pathogens. In response, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki tweeted, This is all an obvious ploy by Russia to try to justify its further premeditated, unprovoked and unjustified attack on Ukraine. She goes on, we should all be on the lookout for Russia to possibly use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine or to create a false flag operation using them. It's a clear pattern. Boris Johnson has now also echoed those claims. The stuff that you're hearing about uh, chemical weapons, this is straight out of their playbook. They start saying that uh, there are chemical weapons uh, that uh, have been stored by uh, their opponents or by the Americans. And so when they themselves deploy uh, chemical weapons, as I, as I fear they, they may, they have a, a, a sort of a maskirovka, a, a fake story ready to go. And you've you seen it in Syria. Uh, you, you, you saw it in, even in the UK when... This is what you expect next then? Look, I, you know, it's, I, I just note that that is what they're, they're already doing. So who should we believe? I should say, I don't usually put too much weight on what Boris Johnson or Jen Psaki have to say, but in this war, they are telling less lies than the Kremlin are. I also think it's pretty implausible that the US would decide to house biolabs storing dangerous pathogens in Ukraine, a country which has suffered instability for three decades, is not in NATO and is next door to a rival superpower. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. But testimony in the US Congress this week did make the Americans look pretty shifty. This is Marco Rubio questioning Victoria Nuland, who is the fourth most senior official in the State Department. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. That was a yes-no question from Rubio. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? And a very shifty answer from Newland. An interrogator who wanted clarity would have followed that shifty answer by pushing harder. But Rubio had been meaning all along to give Newland a softball question. He wanted an answer to counter the Russians. So he attempted this save. 
I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. So we go from a question about facts to a question about hypotheticals. It doesn't look great. But the Pentagon have said that this doesn't mean Russia were right all along. Their position was explained on Fox News. Those are Soviet-era biolabs that the U.S. has been engaged since 2005 in trying to help Ukraine convert the research facilities safely. In Uzbekistan, for instance, the United States eliminated nearly 12 tons of weaponized anthrax from an island in the Aral Sea in 2001. Here's a statement from the Pentagon. Quote, on a daily basis, Russia propagates either either directly through state-run media outlets or through the use of surrogates, disinformation aimed at BTRPs, the U.S. Biothreat Reduction Program's laboratory, and capacity-building efforts in former Soviet Union countries. The Lugar Center in Georgia and the Central Reference Laboratory in Kazakhstan are the primary targets, but more recent disinformation efforts have targeted laboratories in Ukraine. Through these different disinformation campaigns, Russia falsely claims the United States is developing biological weapons in laboratories in these countries, as well as killing local populations with purposeful release of biological agents. Aaron, who do you believe here? Well, you, you cut the bit off there, Michael, from the, um, the Fox reporter who, who, who was speaking just then. She was reading from a, a Pentagon press release. Fundamentally, I mean, I, I don't believe the Russians, but I also don't think it's adequate for a journalist to say this is the truth because the Pentagon told me so. I, I don't know what you think, you know, uh, but we've got a pretty we've got a pretty strong record on both sides of of active misinformation. So, from what I can tell, there is obviously a huge amount of congruence between what the, the CIA and the Pentagon is saying. I think some of the the documents un, unveiled by the Russians uh, included the the exit of material out of Ukraine to other sites around the world, which would line up with their story of trying to minimize and mitigate any problems. I mean, it's also important to say, you know, dozens of countries research all kinds of chemical and, and biological weapons. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's being done aggressively. I'm not naive, of course, if it's being done in, in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, it's being done under US supervision with US knowledge. But I don't think there's any reason to believe the Russian account here, no. Well, we're on the same page on believing the Russian account. I mean, I, I think from, from that video from Congress, it did seem, I mean, the obvious interpretation from that is that the Americans do think that there are chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine, and they haven't shouted about it, because even though, you know, there is an explanation for it, it's not something that makes Ukraine look great, and it doesn't make America look great, because we probably would have said, you know, if these are left over from the Soviet Union, it's been 30 years, you know, it's been mm. 30 years, maybe it's time to, to get rid of these pathogens. But I think clearly the reason this is being said now by Russia, and they're saying it in a you know, fairly ridiculous way, is because, well, potentially they do want to leave a pretext for chemical weapons, or potentially they're just, you know, trying to raise the stakes a little bit. We, we know at this point in time, that the Russians are doing quite badly using conventional means, they are now taking desperate measures. We're going to talk about whether that could possibly include chemical or biological warfare, but I think it, it definitely does include 
this sort of scaremongering, trying to really confuse the narrative and sort of send people into this spiral where they've got no idea what's going to happen next. So as I said at the beginning, my sort of initial reaction to this story, which is that it would be quite strange for America to place cutting-edge research facilities into biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine, an unstable country, which, you know, keeps sort of switching allegiances. That's how it's been over the past three decades. It goes from pro-Russian leaders to pro-Western leaders, or mostly leaders who are somewhere in between. It wouldn't be the ideal place for the Americans to do this cutting-edge research. So I do think the most plausible account is that these are labs which are left over from the Soviet Union, and for whatever reason, the Ukrainians decided they didn't quite want to properly shut them down. And they're a little bit embarrassed about that, but that doesn't mean that the Russian account is true. I think that's where I stand. Does that sound plausible? Yeah, and we've got a pretty good record of how the US confronts first the Soviet Union after 1945 and and then the Russian Federation more recently. You know, we know that it pumps huge amounts of money into, into propaganda, into media efforts, you know, information war, as it's now charmingly known, into weapons, into proxies, into civil society organizations. It's, it's been doing that for decades, right? The CIA and was doing that in, in Europe and South America in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Now, I might be wrong, but there's no documented history of the United States developing weapons of mass destruction in a foreign country to use against either the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation. I mean, I could be wrong. There is, for instance, sales of chemical weapons to Iraq, which were later used uh, in Halabja against Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. And people say, well, how do you know the Americans sold it? And you say, well, we can look at the receipts. It's widely acknowledged that these weapons were sold by the US involving one Donald Rumsfeld, who later became uh, Secretary of State under, under George W. Bush. But that's selling the weapons. I think developing them in a country, like you say, Michael, it's passed from, from one faction to the other, Yanukovych to Yushchenko, Poroshenko, Zelensky. It would be very, very, very risky to, to be developing these kinds of technologies in a country which could flip one side to the other every five, 10 years. So I really don't buy it. Are there secret weapons caches for stay-behind networks? Very possibly. Is their funding going towards people whose politics are absolutely unacceptable for anybody who cares about democracy? Absolutely. This, I don't buy it. For the principal reason, there's no real historical precedent. If you're still not convinced, we can go to the Russian account here. We can look in a bit more detail at the Russian accusations, which were made today at a meeting of the UN Security Council. We convene, convene the meeting today because, uh, as Russia is conducting a special military operation in, in Ukraine, we discovered a truly shocking fact of emergency cleanup by the Kiev regime of the traces of a military biological program which is being implemented by Kiev with support by the United States Ministry of Defense. Our Ministry of Defense, Russian Ministry of Defense, now has documents which confirms uh, that on the territory of Ukraine there was a network consisting of at least 30 biological laboratories in which very dangerous biological experiments are being conducted, aimed at strengthening the pathogenic qualities of the plague, anthrax, tularemia, cholera, and other lethal diseases using synthetic biology. 
our military became aware of the details of the Project UP4, which was being conducted in laboratories of Kiev, Kharkov, and Odessa. The goal is to study the possibility of spreading particularly dangerous inf infections using migratory birds. And this includes the highly pathogenic uh, influenza H5N1, whose lethality for people reaches 50%, as well as in the Newcastle disease. Yeah, there was another project uh, where the vector of the potential agents of biological weapon, uh, bats, were considered. This strikes me as very, very implausible. For a start, it, it seems like a slightly odd project anyway for a military industrial complex to be making uh, a pathogen which has a 50% death rate because as we've seen from coronavirus, these things, they don't stay within borders. So if, if you wanted to introduce this kind of pathogen into a, a foreign country, it'd likely get to your country. Birds, you know, if you're going to be dealing with something this dangerous, would you have it fly, you know, on the wings of birds? Again, I don't find it particularly plausible, which doesn't rule it out, of course. I'm not a chemical weapons expert or a biological weapons expert. Let's go on to the more serious topic, though, which is whether or not this could be a pretext for using chemical weapons. Now, I do think that that is something which very much is within the realms of plausibility. And it seems to me that whether or not chemical weapons are used by the Russians depends to a large degree on the trajectory of the war, how it's going for Vladimir Putin. Let's in that light, take a look at a clip from Zelensky. He today suggested the war was going pretty well for the Ukrainians. We can see our military victories and enemies' losses. We expect that the fight will be over sooner, that the occupants will fail sooner. We have already turned a strategic turning point. We are moving towards our goal, towards our victory. It is a patriotic war a war against a very stubborn enemy which does not pay attention to thousands of its own killed people, killed soldiers. Those were fighting words from Zelensky. He's understandably firing up Ukrainians to resist. But the grim paradox in this war is that the better Ukraine's conventional forces do, the more likely Putin is to resort to dipping into his store of unconventional weapons. Obviously, that's not to say the Ukrainians shouldn't be fighting because it would just provoke a, a chemical weapon. But this is just a, a sort of sad, grim logic, which I think we, we find ourselves in. And it's important to note the West does seem to have struggled to give Putin a clear incentive not to escalate. This was Biden at a press conference today. The White House has said that, that Russia may use chemical weapons or create a false flag operation to use them. What evidence have you seen showing that? And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack? I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but, but uh, Russia would pay a severe price to use chemicals. Would the U.S. Have Aaron, I want your take on this. I don't think that Joe Biden's answer there will particularly scare Vladimir Putin. It sounded like a, you know, the US president basically doesn't know what he'd do in that situation. It's the best of my recollection that was similar from Obama in Syria and there, there, there weren't strong consequences, you know. I mean, there's all sorts of debates around chemical weapons, who used them, and let's not get into it. Let's, let's just work on the presumption they were used by the Syrian government against domestic forces and that catalyzed, actually, Russia after 2015, intensifying its presence in the country, and, and the war actually came to a quick, rather quick, a, 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 an end rather quickly. 
So what, what was the downside of their application there? I mean, there wasn't really, really a massive one and obviously killed large numbers of people, but it's still a very limited use. You know, you're not seeing, for instance, the use of chlorine gas like you do in World War I. And, and I, I think it's very plausible. I think it's, I do think it's very plausible, actually. I think, you know, the more, the more you read and learn about biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, you know, it's, it's actually a bit of a miracle they've not been used more in the last, well, particularly in the 20th century. And so the idea that they'll always be out of bounds, I think is a, a touch naive. And like you say, Michael, if there's no real off, off ramp for Putin in this war, then military escalation is something that is, is highly plausible. I mean, what's the comparative advantage that the Russians have? You know, it's not economics. It's not. I mean, yes, okay, the rest of the world needs Russian wheat, oil, palladium, uh, platinum, gold, titanium, whatever. And we're going to see massive inflation, neon gas. We're going to see massive inflation. But ultimately, if there's deglobalization, if there are sanctions imposed on the Russian central bank, the people that are going to be hit hardest are the Russians. So the leverage that the rest of the world has, the Atlantic powers, the West, the allies of Ukraine, the leverage they have is economic. That is not the sphere that the, the Russians can play on. And actually, you saw that, Michael, with the, with the sanctions announced by Putin a few days ago. At first, you think, oh, my God, they're not going to have any imports or exports with non-friendly countries, i.e. countries presently imposing sanctions on them, uh, until the end of this year. Then you find out it's in industries like cars, telecoms, electronics. Nobody buys these things from Russia, right? <laughs> the EU is buying 40% of EU gases from Russia. It, the EU is not buying its telecoms from Russia. So that was actually quite symbolic. But what Russia does have, Michael, is violence. It has violence. It has overwhelming military force. And it can't prevail in a lower intensity conflict, which is what the original plan was, because obviously you want, the, you want some consent from the Ukrainian people after this is over if you win. It can't win that. So I think there is a very real possibility. It, it descends into something like Syria after 2015, which is just annihilate the country's economy, smash it to pieces, and ensure that it can't get back up again for another 20, 30 years. A different enemy, of course, in, in, uh, in Syria after 2015, which was ISIS, and that was even being commended by the US and Tony Blair saying, this is good, Putin's doing this. That rationale being transplanted to an aggressive, illegal war against citizens, uh, very, very, very terrifying, I think. But it's, it's something which is very real and shouldn't be taken lightly. I was actually, because I wasn't quite sure, you know, what chemical weapons would be used, what impact would they have? I was listening to someone on a podcast who was saying sort of the use of them at this period of time would potentially be that, you know, if what you're trying to do is really, really force your opponent to, to concede, and that strategy does involve sort of like causing maximum terror to civilians, because basically saying we can do whatever we want until you give in to us. The difference between conventional weapons and chemical weapons is that they can go underground. So if you've got lots of people who are taking refuge from conventional bombs in underground stations or whatever, chemical weapons, they're not going to be safe from. So it could be seen as more intolerable for the Ukrainian government than conventional weapons, which, you know, if, if this is the logic we're following, would potentially mean that Putin had a, a rational interest to use them. Syrian case is interesting because then, obviously, Barack Obama sort of discursively in words was very clear. He was like, if he uses a chemical weapon, there will be a red line. The implied red line would be that America would enter with military force. They didn't for you know, X, Y, Z reasons, partly because all of their interventions turn out to be absolute catastrophes and there are enough people who kind of recognize that. But in this situation, they can't even say that discursively because they are in a bit of a bind whereby they're saying, well, we're definitely, you know, whatever happens, essentially, we're not going to get militarily involved. 
beyond there being like a nuclear attack somewhere. So we kind of just want him not to do it. And this is why I think we're in a pretty dangerous situation at this point in time. Not because, by the way, I think we should be saying, oh yeah, let's gung-ho, get military involved in this and you know attack Russia, because I think that would involve World War III. I think the problem we have now is that essentially, beyond direct military intervention, the West have gone right up to their threshold already without any off-ramps. So basically we've said, Vladimir Putin, you are scum. You know, it would be a moral, a moral outrage for you to gain anything whatsoever out of this war. So what we're going to do is we're going to sanction every single aspect of your economy to make life hell for people in Russia. We're going to kick you out of or try and kick you out of every international organization, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to make you a pariah, all perfectly morally justifiable, by the way. But if what you want is to de-escalate this war, then saying all of that, saying basically there are no off-ramps for you, sorry, you're done, this is over, but then also recognizing that, oh, wait, but he has nuclear weapons and he has chemical weapons, which means that we can't actually go further than we've said. It seems to be the opposite way around. It's all talk when they kind of know that they're not going to be able to follow it through. And that, that's why I'm very, very worried about how this could escalate, because I think it could have been the case that potentially if the sanction had been more targeted or X, Y, Z, then the West could have had you know, some means of saying, if you do this, we will do something else that hurts you. But they've kind of used, they've pulled a lot of the rabbits out of the, the hat already. Let's look at one more claim that there was made today about false flags. Again, I think this is pretty early days, so I'm not necessarily showing you this because I'm like, this is 100% true. It's interesting to talk about. It was reported today by Oliver Carroll. He's a reporter at The Economist. So it says, new. Ukraine says Russian aircraft deliberately targeting Belarusian village from Ukraine airspace as a pretext to Minsk joining war. This after Lukashenko flying to Moscow for talks with Putin, dangerous territory not only for Ukraine, but also for the mustachio dictator. So he's suggesting there that Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, I suppose could be about to be ousted by Vladimir Putin because Putin's annoyed that he hasn't sent his army forward to join the Russians in Ukraine, partly I think because he's worried that would you know, create a lot of opposition within Belarus and the war isn't going very well. Aaron, I'm guessing you don't know precisely whether or not that's true. Any comment on on that claim from the Ukrainians? I mean, also, Michael, how seriously do you take a journalist on the ground who refers to one party as the mustachio dictator? Is that particularly <laughs> professional? You're saying there's a press release from one side. And this is war, by the way. The first casualty in, in war is truth. Okay, yeah. And what Russia has done in Ukraine, illegal war of aggression. But believe me, there's very little truth going on from all sides. And you take the account from one side, with no ancillary secondary evidence, and then you call the other side a mustachio dictator. I mean, I'm not going to take you seriously, sorry. And by the way, this is somebody at The Economist. This isn't somebody at Reuters or Associated Press. So there's a bit more salt in that pinch. You know, this is a, a, a publication which when Salvador Allende was murdered in 1973, I believe, you know, there were people at The Economist magazine in London doing jigs in the hallways, singing, getting boozed up. It's not that long ago, Michael. It was 50 years ago. These people are still around. They still have influence in our culture and our media and our politics. So please be a bit more professional. And I, I'm certainly not going to pay attention to a tweet like that. No, it may be true. It might not be true. But I think journalists, if they have a little bit more sincerity and, uh, you know, I think professionalism about them, then maybe we can take that as something approaching analysis. Otherwise, it's, it's propaganda. If somebody says, the moustache show dictator, of course, I'm not going to take you seriously. The point about Ukrainian government press releases is also worth remembering, right? Because while definitely don't believe anything the Russians are saying at this point, but also don't really believe anything the Ukrainians are saying at this point either, because they are both very explicitly engaged in an information war. 
you know, and that's why well, I do think it's pretty sinister on the Russian side. I think it's less sinister on the Ukrainian side because I, I, I think they're just, they're, they're fighting a just cause in this particular war. But both of them are doing press releases which they think will fire up their side or which they think will, you know, benefit them in some way. So in the Ukrainian case, it's generally in the direction of how do we make it seem like this isn't a lost cause and how do we apply moral pressure for the West to get more involved. And from the Russian side, from the Russian side, as we talked about, it's, you know, basically the, the Ukrainians are all Nazis and drug addicts and the, the country is peppered with Amfrax labs. Can I give an example as well, Michael, from the first Gulf War, if that's okay? Please do. I wrote a thread about this yesterday. I believe in 1990, there was a Kuwaiti girl called Nariyar. She spoke to a congressional human rights committee. She said that she was volunteering as a nurse in Kuwait, a bit strange for a 15-year-old, but there you go. And she gave a very specific number, more than 300 babies were taken out of incubators in this hospital and they were murdered by Iraqi soldiers. They were left to die outside their incubators. This was given to a congressional committee. She was crying, justifiably, right? You're hearing this, you go, this is terrible. My God, this is you know, humanitarian catastrophe. Mm -hmm. These are war crimes, et cetera, et cetera. In the subsequent months, George uh, Bush Sr. mentioned her testimony 10 times. Gallup polling for US intervention in Kuwait went up massively from a, a minor position to a majority one. Guess what? She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. It was all a lie. It was all wow. untrue. It was repeated at the time by Amnesty International. And then actually several months later, they said, what's happened here is that the human rights community has been exploited by the Bush administration. She was coached by a public affairs consultancy who recorded the whole thing. Because bear in mind, this is 1990, right? You don't have YouTube. Who recorded the whole thing. And they sent it out to every single major radio station, TV station, newspaper in the United States. This was a public relations exercise of the first order. And people around the world, right? I'm sure people in the UK, in Europe, and the United States were like, this is crazy, right? Children are being left out of their incubators in Kuwait. We have to go in. Now, what Iraq did with Kuwait was, again, an illegal war of aggression. I'm not saying Saddam is the good guy, but that was untrue. And that's a warning in regards to the kinds of stories you might hear. Now, the stakes in Iraq and Kuwait were quite low, right? You could go into Iraq, and if, if Britain and the United States lost war in Iraq, which was never going to happen, then they would leave. Fine. If there is a nuclear confrontation over something which is factually untrue, there are huge costs for all sides. So it's really fundamental, Michael, that we learn these lessons and, and, and don't make mistakes. Because, like I say, the cliche is the first casualty in war is the truth. And my God, in the case of the first Gulf War, it was a casualty before the US even got involved. That incredible story is, is new to me. I obviously wasn't following that at, at the time either, but I can imagine that anyone who questioned that narrative would have been called a Saddam stooge or a you know, genocide denier. Because not only is, is, is truth the first casualty in war, but people are very, very quick to say, if you are questioning the dominant narrative, then you are an enemy and morally abject, which is not a good place for us to find ourselves in because that just gives way too much power to the security services of whatever country you're in. If you're in Russia, I mean, obviously it's much riskier to do that. If I hosted a podcast in Russia, I probably wouldn't be able to stream here now and say that I think potentially this 30 Amfrax lab story doesn't stack up. But, you know, if I could, I should do that. And here we should also be very skeptical um, of what we're told by our security services and what is repeated uncritically in the media. Um, even if, as we keep saying, in this case, I've got more sympathy for the Ukrainians exaggerating the number of Russians they've killed than I, I have for 
Vladimir Putin calling the Ukrainian government drug addicts and Nazis and calling people who've just been bombed in a hospital crisis actors, which is what Sergei Lavrov did this week. Founder of the money-saving expert website Martin Lewis has hit out at the government using the war on Ukraine to mask Britain's cost of living crisis. Speaking on Radio 4, he responded to comments made by the business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng that British people would be willing to make sacrifices in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Martin Lewis, founder of the website and consumer service Money Saving Expert, indeed the money saving expert himself, uh, is also with us. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. Uh, Can I just pick something up that you said in your quote, that Kwasi Kwarteng has said that many people are willing to make sacrifices because of Ukraine. I think he's probably right. But I'm slightly worried that we are seeing what may be potentially a deliberate narrative shift that effectively says the entire cost of living crisis is due to Ukraine and therefore we all need to make sacrifices. And that is not correct. What has happened in Ukraine has exacerbated the situation. But the rises in energy, heating oil, water, council tax, broadband and mobiles, food, national insurance were all in place before Ukraine. And when we have a budget or a spring statement coming in a couple of weeks, we need to be careful not to allow that narrative to happen and to be used as an excuse that we all need to make sacrifices because of Ukraine. And that's why we have to suck in the cost of living crisis, because that is not a correct analysis. It is a worsening of the situation. It is not the cause of the situation. Aaron, I know you've been um, reading and talking and writing a lot about the cost of living crisis and how Ukraine might affect that. What did you make of Martin Lewis's comments there? Yeah, very fair. I mean, you had um, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, last month say that we're expecting 7% inflation this year. Uh, And that was before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 7%. Now, bear in mind, the Bank of England's target for inflation is 2%. And if you're getting a pay rise this year of anything below 7%, then that means your pay is effectively going down. The spending power you exercise is, is diminishing. So when people say falling real wages, you think, well, I got a 2% pay rise. It's falling because the, the goods that your wages are meant to buy are, are outpacing the increase in the increase you've got in wages. So falling real wages, you can get a 1% pay increase, inflation of 10%, your disposable income has fallen by 9%. Uh, interestingly enough, Michael, you know, the Labour Party, who, who like to think of themselves as progressives, they've offered their staff a 2% pay rise for this year and for next year. Even before Ukraine, that would mean that they would see their real pay fall this year by 5%, which is pretty astonishing. There was a report from the CEBR, an economics think tank, I think that came out on Tuesday. Now, that was terrifying, Michael. That was utterly terrifying. They were predicting a fall in real disposable incomes this year. I think of around 5%. They said it would be the single worst year, 2022 would be the single worst year for a fall in disposable incomes, the worst year since 1955. So they're expecting, I think, inflation to peak in Q2, the second quarter of this year, at about 8.7%, and to stay above 7%, I think, all the way through to the spring of next year. That, That paper is focusing on the economic consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They also projected lower growth. Their projections of growth went from about 4% to 1.9% for this year. You think, well, 2% is still good. Of course, we've come out of the coronavirus pandemic. The economy shrank by around 9.4% in 2020. It grew by about 7.8% in, um, in, in 2021. So it grew substantially, but it didn't make up for the entire loss. 
And so I think we're marginally now above where we were before COVID. But the point is, Michael, the economy going into 2024, according to this report, will only be marginally bigger than it was at the beginning of 2019. Uh, and of course, this comes off the back of real economic stagnation since 2008, the global financial crisis. So you are really looking at 15, 16 lost years when it comes to wages, productivity, and economic growth. That cannot all be put down to a war which has just happened in the last couple of weeks. It's a major factor. It's a major, major factor. But inflation was already here. And I'll finish with this, Michael. When you fight a war, you socialize the costs. Because if you don't, you lose consent for that war very, very quickly. Now, I would argue and maintain, if you're going to socialize the costs of war, you should socialize the costs of economic war, which is precisely what we are fighting right now against Russia. And it has huge, tremendous downsides for this country, particularly for the poorest. So if politicians are going to do that, and I think they're right to do that, then they need to socialize those costs. You've seen Rory Stewart today say that we should offer free public transport. I think it's a great idea not just to address this crisis of energy security, but also the climate crisis. These are the kinds of things that we need to be talking about over the next year to 18 months. Low carbon solutions, which socialize these costs, help the poorest, and actually mean we don't leave our climate change commitments behind us. I personally think the entire political class is asleep at the wheel on this. They're not going to do anything about it. There's a very real chance we actually go right on this. That's what Nigel Farage would love to do. And I don't think Labour are even going to stand their ground when it comes to present net zero carbon commitments by, by 2050. We've got the budget coming on March the 23rd. Keep your eyes peeled for it. I think Rishi Sunak will disappoint. The problem is, Michael, we don't have a meaningful opposition to offer an alternative. To make this very explicit, what does socialising the cost mean? Is this sort of like saying we'll subsidise people's gas bills with a, by taxing the rich, for example? Is, is that what we're talking about here? So if you're, if you're on £20,000 a year, and your disposable income falls by 5%. That's a lot worse than if you're on £100,000 a year and your disposable income falls by 5%. For the person whose disposable income falls by 5% on 100 grand a year, it means you might not take such a nice holiday. You know, you might not buy such nice Christmas gifts or whatever. For somebody on £20,000, and there's many people like this with no savings, generally in work, in poverty, which is 60% or, or less of the average household wage, Seeing your purchasing power go down by that much means you miss meals, means you can't buy your kid's school uniform, it means you can't pay for petrol for your car. And people say, well, get public transport. That's not always an option for some people in some jobs, right? It means you can't turn on the heating when it's cold. So I, I think there has to be really extensive government measures here. But for people on anything like £30,000 a year or less, I think this is a huge, huge, huge problem. I even think, you know, Michael, you look at Andrew Bailey's estimate for inflation being 7% before the war. The CEBR is now saying 8.7%. Why wouldn't it be higher than that? I think it's really plausible we get inflation above 8.7%. I'm not the expert here. That's what they're saying. But given we've gone from 7 to 8.7% in the space of a month, I think if this worsens, and it might not, you know, we might have a negotiated peace settlement next month. But worst case scenario, I think we should prepare for inflation we've not really seen in this country, certainly in our lifetime. A funny time to make this point, because I know people will be tightening their belts at this period in time, but we do not want Navarra Media to be a victim of this cost of living crisis. So if you do have some spare cash, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support. We really do appreciate it. We, in general, ask the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. So if you are lucky enough to have the kind of boss that will give you a pay rise in line with inflation, maybe feel, think about passing that on to us. We know that that's not going to be 
the situation for many of you. Let's go to our next story. It is our final story. It's a very, very meaty one. One of Putin's pretexts for invading Ukraine was to denazify the country. That's nonsense. Ukraine's president is a moderate and a Jew, and the far right got 2% at the last election. But just because Putin's justification for his illegal invasion was just that, bogus, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about the far right in Ukraine. If we suppress inconvenient facts, that will only make people more liable to believe Putin's propaganda. And just as important, as this war continues, it will have effects beyond Ukraine. People across Europe are going to fight against Russia. We need to consider what might be motivating them and what groups they'll be fighting alongside. That applies even if the ultimate cause of defending Ukraine against an illegal invasion is a just one. We're going to get to the big players in a moment, in particular the Azov Battalion. But first, let's start with some history. In the Second World War, most Ukrainians fought with the Red Army against the Nazis, but an influential group of nationalists collaborated with Hitler, including by organising pogroms against Jews. A leading figure in that movement was the fascist Stepan Bandera. Bandera, by the end of the war, would go on to fight for the independence of Ukraine from both the Soviet Union and the Nazis. And for that reason, in 2010, he was posthumously granted the title Hero of Ukraine by then-President Viktor Yushchenko. It was a decision condemned by anti-fascist groups and the European Parliament, and Bandera would ultimately be stripped of the title in 2011 by Yushchenko's successor, Viktor Yanukovych. Now let's fast forward to 2013, 2014, and the Euromaidan protests. These were sparked by the decision of President Yanukovych to abandon a trade deal with the EU in favour of one with Russia. Euromaidan, which was a genuinely popular movement, brought thousands of Ukrainians to Kyiv's Maidan Square. They gathered to demonstrate their opposition to Yanukovych's decision and their own support for closer relations with the EU. The demonstrators also attacked the rampant corruption prevalent among Ukraine's ruling class. Tent cities were erected and there were concerts and food stalls. But as time went on, the demonstrations got increasingly violent. This took the form of heavy-handed policing, the kind we're used to seeing across much of the West. But there were also significant street battles between protesters and police, and the hostilities would end in tragedy. Between January and February, 108 protesters and 13 police officers were shot dead. The deadliest night was the 20th of February, when 45 protesters and four police were killed. Yanukovych would flee the country two days later. Significantly, who instigated the shooting remains contested. The pro-Maidan government, which replaced Yanukovych, blamed units of the police. Others have suggested that far-right snipers in buildings controlled by anti-government forces shot both police and protesters to escalate events. Nine years later, it remains unsolved. What is clear, though, is that far-right elements, even though they were a minority, did have a role in the Euromaidan movement. These flags were seen at the protests. They bear the symbol of Svoboda, an ultra-nationalist far-right party founded in 1995. After the Maidan revolution, it went on to briefly control four ministries in the new government. C-14, also known as S-14, a neo-Nazi nationalist group which began as the youth wing of Svoboda. It's known for its homophobic and anti-Roma attacks in Ukraine. In 2018, the US State Department recognised C-4 as a hate group. 
Also spotted in the Maidan were plenty of these flags. They belong to Right Sector, another far-right paramilitary group formed in 2013 from an alliance of pre-existing nationalist groups. In 2014, it also sprouted a political party. Right Sector would go on to be accused of involvement in a massacre. The context here, after the removal of Yanukovych following the Maidan protests, counter-protests emerged in pro-Russian eastern Ukraine. The largest of these were in Odessa, where on the 2nd of May 2014, street battles between pro-Russian and pro-Maidan groups would end in tragedy. Surrounded by a mass of pro-Maidan protesters, anti-Maidan activists sought shelter in Odessa's trade union's house. Soon, it was in flames. It's not clear how the building was set alight, as both sides were throwing Molotov cocktails. But a large number of pro-Russian protesters were trapped inside while the building burned. Some jumped to try and save themselves and were then beaten by pro-Maidan protesters. At the time, the New York Times reported this. As the building burned, Ukrainian activists sang the Ukrainian national anthem. Witnesses on both sides said. They also hurled a new taunt. Colorado. For the Colorado potato beetle, striped red and black like the pro-Russian ribbons. Those outside chanted, burn Colorado, burn, witnesses said. Swastika-like symbols were spray-painted on the building, along with graffiti reading Galician SS, though it was unclear when it had appeared or who had painted it. In the end, 42 anti-Maidan activists were killed in the fire. Nine years later, no one has been successfully prosecuted. Again, we should be clear, we're not describing these events and groups to suggest that the far right has mass support in Ukraine. Svoboda only has one seat in the Ukrainian parliament, while the right sector has none. But Ukraine's far right problem has less to do with the support they receive from the public and more the support they enjoy from the state. That includes from the courts. This is C14 leader Yvan Karas. It's our general mission to totally ruin uh, chains that connect our country with the imperial uh, power from the past. And that being Russia? Yes, we can tell Russia, not only Russia, Soviet Union. Are you a Nazi? Uh, No, I don't think I'm a Nazi, I'm a Ukrainian nationalist. What does that mean? The main confrontation is uh, about that some ethnic groups uh, have uh, control uh, many business structures, some economic, some political forces, and uh, which ethnic groups? Uh, 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 Russians and Jews and the Poles. It may be uh, every some uh, non-Ukrainian group control a huge percent of some economic or political power. And uh, of course, in this situation, uh, Ukrainian people have uh, some uh, tension between it and it causes uh, conflicts. Given what Karas said there, it might seem surprising that C-14 won a 2019 libel case against a Ukrainian journalist who described them as neo-Nazis. The court ruled that to call them a neo-Nazi organisation harmed their reputation. The journalist had to pay damages. But when it comes to far-right impunity and the protection or toleration of fascist groups, no example is more profound than that of the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion was formed in Mariupol as a volunteer militia to take on pro-Russian separatists. Mariupol is in the east of Ukraine in the region of Donetsk, whose capital had been taken over by pro-Russians. The Azov Battalion wanted to keep Mariupol Ukrainian, and the city was ultimately kept out of pro-Russian hands. 
This won Azov plaudits and they were merged with the Ukrainian National Guard in November 2014. But make no mistake, integration into state structures does not mean Azov were just moderate professionals. These guys are really far right. Their insignia is the Wolf's Angel, an SS symbol used by the A Division of the Nazi paramilitaries in Hitler's Third Reich. And the group was founded by this man, Andriy Beletsky. Beletsky's past statements include saying Ukraine's national mission was to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against Semite-led Untermenschen. Untermenschen means subhumans. Belensky would resign as commander of the Azov Battalion in September 2014 after successfully standing for parliament, but Azov would continue to grow. And recruitment starts early. And besides fighting in eastern Ukraine and training kids to fight, Azov also runs the National Militia, a paramilitary group founded in 2017. In 2019, hundreds of members turned out, parading through the streets before gathering for a speech from former Azov leader Beletsky. And while the National Militia says its aim is to assist the police in maintaining civil order, they have often branched out into fuggery. This is from a 2018 Newsnight report following the National Militia in Lviv. We then go to a place where punters can gamble on computer terminals. We're told it's been operating illegally, as its owners allegedly have links to Russia. It's unspectacular stuff. The national militia call the police out. And reluctantly, they appear and go through the motions. What the national militia wants us to film is that there are force for good. Here to restore order and make the police do their job. It's a message that has some resonance. There's a growing despondency here about how little has changed. The next day, we're contacted by the company that owns the gambling shop. It turns out that many of their other branches have also been raided by the national militia. This is the national militia when journalists aren't watching. We're given other footage, which shows more places being trashed, men lighting fireworks indoors, even setting one location on fire. The National Militia tell us they're working alongside the police, but they have also, on several occasions, fought them. Here, they brawled and used pepper spray on officers as they tried and failed to pressure a judge into keeping an allegedly corrupt politician in custody. And the Azov Battalion has an international status. They explicitly seek to recruit foreign members from other far-right and nationalist groups in Europe and the US. That was explained in this excerpt from a 2021 Time investigation. What worries officials in the West is Azov's recruitment strategy. It's tried hard to build friendships with far-right groups around the world, especially in the US and Europe. During my visit in 2019, I spent a day at one of the biggest recruitment events in Azov's history. 
Thousands of people showed up for a day of fighting sports and blatant propaganda. There were neo-Nazi symbols, tattoos, and posters all over the place. And many in the crowd seemed pretty receptive to Azov's far-right ideology. Events like this also tend to attract recruits from abroad. One of the ones I met was named Robin, who had just arrived in Ukraine from Sweden, where he told me he's wanted for hate crimes. This uh, is so hard to explain the surroundings for someone who's watching this, you know. It's surreal, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like something you read about uh, the great Germany before, you know, in the 1920s. It's, uh, it's a revival of the um, Indo-European soul. Mm-hmm. And it's all happening here in Ukraine. Also speaking to Time, Azov's head of international outreach explained their approach. We basically recruited everyone who could hold weapons in their hand when the Ukrainian state was paralyzed and the defense of the Ukrainian state was totally in the hand of Ukrainian volunteers. So there were many war adventurers, um, uh, guys who believed that uh, they are uh, on kind of ideological tour to save maybe uh, the future of the West and so on and so forth. So the, f- the future of the white race? Or, yes, yes. So why have Ukraine's political class accepted Azov as part of the state? In part, this has to do with friends in high places. For example, Azov had close connections to Arsen Avakov, who was Ukraine's interior minister from 2014 until last year. As a 2016 Open Democracy piece explains, their relationship to the politician dated back many years. 2005 to 2010 was a fruitful time for Patriot of Ukraine, the Kharkiv neo-Nazi group whose members later came to form Azov. With Avakov as governor of Kharkiv, this neo-Nazi group cooperated with the Kharkiv authorities and police. Their activities included monitoring illegal immigrants in the city's student hostels and raiding shopping kiosks whose owners were, by coincidence, not loyal to the local authorities' material interests. In February 2014, Avakov became interior minister and began to patronise Patriot of Ukraine, Azov and Beletsky himself. Indeed, Beletsky, after having been recognised as a political prisoner and released from prison, was given a rank in Avakov's home ministry. Meanwhile, an ally of Beletsky, Vadim Troyan, headed up the interior ministry, Kiev branch. Avakov has now left the scene, but it now seems likely that the war will strengthen Azov Battalion's hand. They have already cast themselves as playing a leading role in resistance to the Russians. And just this week, a commander of the Azov Battalion made this appeal. My name is Denis Prokopenko. I'm a commander of the Azov Regiment. The defense of Mariupol has already been going for 12 days. We Azov Regiment protectors of Mariupol are successfully fortifying our combat task on the front line. The enemy has not entered the city. Being surrounded since March the 1st by the increasing amount of the enemy troops, our soldiers holding on the defense of an important strategic place, the forepost of the Sea of Azov. The strength of our fighters has been already admired by the whole world. Uh, dedication of the warriors has been highly evaluated by Ukrainians as well as people outside the country. Today is the time for determined actions. The delay can cost more and more human lives in the world. So Europe will heal for centuries. Create a no-fly zone over Ukraine, support with the modern weapon, organize the humanitarian aid for the civil people. We from our side will provide the kinds of support of the international aid to protect Mariupol, its people. During the historical time, we need to stop the aggressor together, saving Mariupol, saving the Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. 
Worryingly, the framing of Azov as heroes, not just neo-Nazis who happen to be fighting on the right side, is being enabled by Western media. This is how Azov Battalion were described in a 2019 New York Times article. It says, Azov is a Ukrainian neo-Nazi paramilitary organization. Now, this is from 2022. Azov are now apparently a unit of the Ukrainian National Guard that has drawn far-right fighters from around the world. It doesn't mention that the reason neo-Nazis are attracted to Azov is because it's led by neo-Nazis. The change also applies to the big tech companies. According to a report from The Intercept, after the war on Ukraine was launched, Facebook changed its policy to now allow praise of the Azov Battalion so long as it's fighting the Russian invasion. Aaron, I want your take on this. I know we're on the same page. Putin's invasion of Ukraine is brutal and criminal. His so-called denazification plan is pure propaganda. But given that, does it still worry you that discussing the actual far-right problem has become a bit of a taboo? Yeah, and it is a major problem, Michael. I think in 2010, uh, the former president, uh, Yushchenko, awarded to Stepan Bandera, who was a fascist, a uh, hero of Ukraine award. So this is a national ideology, an allegedly centre-right politician saying that a neo-Nazi, somebody who collaborated with the Wehrmacht and the SS, is welcome in modern Ukraine. And, and, and if you raise this now, of course, oh, you, Putin's puppet. Listen, when you've got ultra-nationalist ideology, it's been around for 80 years in this country. It's going to be around for another 80 years. These are the last people we should be arming. I know that's probably not a particularly popular a particularly popular take on Twitter right now, but it's true. You know, in in the Second World War, you had about uh, the the numbers are uh, unentirely precise, but you're looking at tens of thousands of people from Galicia in West Ukraine enlisted with the SS to fight against the USSR. Tens of thousands of people. Like I say, you've got Bandera, who was uh, an ultra nationalist fascist leader, a member of the uh, the OUN, or I think it's called the, the OUN, which is a, was a Nazi organization in Ukraine. And these are these are his modern day uh, descendants, and we're arming them. We are arming them, and they are a major part of Ukrainian civil society. Now, what's interesting, Michael, you mentioned Svoboda. In 2012, I believe they got something like 10% in the elections there, which is obviously significant. But it's not Yobik at their peak in Hungary, for instance, which was you know towards 20%. Similar, similar kind of politics, similarly, you know, extreme, extreme rights. The right of Fidesz in, in Ukraine, Yobik, you know, same here. Svoboda, extremely right wing. And they've fallen away since. And if you look at the sort of political trajectory in Ukraine since 2004, since the color revolution, you get Yushchenko comes to power. He's our guy. What happens in the following election? I think he gets 5% because he fails to address the fundamental problems of the Ukrainian economy. We've seen depopulation. We've seen economic stagnation. A Ukrainian today is, is expected to have a life expectancy the same as it was in the 1960s which is really extraordinary. I think you've seen the country's population contract by about 8 to 10 million since the 1990s. These aren't really statistics which apply to any other European country, which is why you see this political crisis after the mid-2000s. Ukrainians, quite rightly and understandably, want something better. They turn to Yushchenko. He doesn't change anything. He subsequently gets 5% in an in election. And then you get the, uh, the election of Yanukovych, of course, he's removed in the Maidan uh, protests. You can say what you want, but that's not democratic. 
It's not a democratic way to remove a leader. A, a democracy is the peaceful transition of political power from one holder of office to another. That's not democratic. He's then replaced by uh, Poroshenko, who in the following election only gets, I think, 25% of the vote. He loses, of course, to the incumbent Zelensky. So what that tells you is whoever comes into power in Ukraine prior to Zelensky and this awful situation he finds himself in, they offer solutions to the country's massive economic, political, social problems, and they're boosted out pretty quickly because they appear to be intractable. And into those conditions, Michael, depopulation, stagnant living standards, life expectancy, just really comparative to other European countries, kind of falling off a cliff, those are the kinds of conditions in which the far right grows, let alone one which has got such historical roots like it does in Ukraine. And we're arming it. I think we're storing up massive, massive problems on the border of Europe, and we'll feel the consequence of those in 10, 20, 30 years' time. I could be wrong, and I really hope I am. But when you see Hillary Clinton say, well, look, in Afghanistan, we bled the Russians dry by arming uh, the Mujahideen, that didn't really turn out well, did it, in the long term. So this could be history repeating itself a little bit. Uh, there are really very few instances of arming neo-Nazis and there not being negative consequences. And again, to use the historical parallels, we've been here before with NATO and, and the European slash Atlantic defense establishment. In Italy, after the Second World War, there was a very powerful communist and socialist parties. Actually, in 1948, they came together. They wanted to win that election in 1948. You saw the United States inject millions of pounds funding right-wing and centrist parties in the 1948 election. You saw extraordinary propaganda efforts from the United States. Of course, the following year, Italy joins NATO. And what you have is the creation of these stay-behind networks. I did another Twitter thread on this uh, actually earlier today, uh, which are basically if this country ever becomes a communist country, whether it's invaded by Russia or by democratic means, these stay-behind networks will effectively operate as a resistance network, a people's militia to make it ungovernable. But what do they do, Michael, over the next several decades, these stay-behind networks? Well, what they do is they subvert, undermine, toxify democratic politics within Italy to the extent where they're actually undertaking terrorist activities. They're blowing people up and murdering people, Michael, in what was called the strategy of tension to undermine democratic politics. And in the hope, which was ultimately vindicated, that the Italian population would turn away from left-wing socialist ideas and want a stronger central Italian authority in the form of the state to embrace a, a stronger security apparatus and to, to turn away from trade union activism, the Socialist Party, and particularly the PCI, the Communist Party. So this idea that you can embrace neo-Nazis in a broader anti-left sort of coalition critically undermined democracy in post-war Italy and other countries across Europe. And I think you may see something here. You know, if you're talking about democratic body politic and civil society in Ukraine, 10, 20, 30 years from now, I think this is really going to hurt it, really going to hurt it. And is the future of Ukrainian nationalism a civic nationalism or an ethno-nationalism? I mean, that's up for grabs, by the way, Michael. And again, that's not me being a puppet of Putin. That's the objective situation. You have highly embedded neo-Nazi, interests, groups, individuals within the Ukrainian state apparatus. To the extent that, like you said, they can, they can lose elections, it doesn't really matter because they've got street mobs and they've got people embedded within the military. That's pretty bad and it can do quite a lot.
I think we, we've got a couple of disagreements there, which I'm going to go back to in a moment. First of all, there was just a comment that really stood out to me that I want to address, which says pure propaganda, but also a very real problem. I can see what you're saying there. Is it inconsistent that we've said what Putin was saying was pure propaganda, but also far-right movements are a real problem in, 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 in Ukraine? And the reason I say that's consistent is Vladimir Putin is not saying, I'm going, well, one, you wouldn't, in, invading a country to rid it of a far-right movement doesn't make any sense anyway. What he was saying is that the government of Ukraine is a Nazi government, a Nazi government made up of drug addicts. And so his war of aggression is therefore justified because that's his aim. That's not his aim. And Ukraine doesn't need, you know, the Ukraine government isn't a Nazi government. For various historical reasons, there is a very worrying and problematic influence that far-right groups have in Ukraine. That's partly because it's been a weak state for a while. The history of, of that country is is slightly different. It's not the same as in, in Germany where the Nazis were defeated and then you had this genuine denazification program in Germany after the Second World War. In some parts of Ukraine, there's a sort of mixed idea where it's, it's more your, your colonizer in, in parts of you. Some parts of Ukraine, it's sort of like we were part of the Soviet Union, we were part of that movement, especially in Western Ukraine. Your experience of the Soviet Union was essentially being, you know, was as empire. So none of this enables you to call Ukraine a Nazi country essentially. And one thing Putin is definitely not trying to do is denazify that country. In fact, this war is only going to empower them, as Aaron has been talking about. As was the thing I wanted to potentially push back on, Aaron. You sort of said that means these are the last people we want to be arming. But does that mean that... Uh, who are you talking about then? Are you talking specifically about Azov or are you talking about the whole Ukrainian army and Ukrainian resistance? No, no, no the Azov battalion. And I think I think the, the United States and the UK and other countries should be saying, look, we need to build up the the domestic military capabilities of Ukraine. Clearly, I think that's an entirely fair thing to do. But you obviously need you need some checks and balances. You know, these the Azov Battalion are they're far right extremists. They're neo-Nazis. And I, I think I think if you're actually serious about building a long-term state infrastructure within Ukraine, you don't deal with those people because they're, they're a faction within the state. They view themselves as they're trying to perpetuate a, rev a, rev a revolution through and within the state. You saw that, that guy there from Sweden say, oh my God, this is like 1920s Germany. It's a pure microcosm, of course, Michael. But you know they, they do have a revolutionary theory of change, which is creating this new world and the shell of the old. I don't buy horseshoe theory, the idea that left and right are the same, but this is, this is an example of it. You know, These people do not have an interest, Michael, in building a multicultural, liberal Ukraine where the rule of law applies to all. They are not interested in that. And so I think giving those people arms and making them a fundamental part of the Ukrainian state apparatus, I think is quite dangerous. Because even with, even with Italy, we, nev we, nev we never did that. You did it informally, and you were saying in Germany there was denazification. There was to an extent, Michael, but actually a lot of Nazis were still integrated within the German post-war structure. And hey, Werner von Braun, he was working for NASA building the Saturn V rocket. And Kurt Waldheim went to the United Nations. So it wasn't entirely denazified, but there was significant denazification, certainly. W what you're seeing here is, is something quite new. And the only sort of analog I can think of is with Spain. You know, people say, well, what happened with Operation Gladio in Spain? And people say, well, the Spanish government was Gladio. That's what you have with Francoism. And that's what I think that's what the Azov Battalion would like to see in Ukraine. Now, I'm sure we can, we can have a, de a debate around that. And of course, right now, they're, they're fighting a defensive war. They're calling it a patriotic war. I think that's, that's precisely what it is. A defensive war against a far more powerful, hostile actor. And I think the best argument to me is, well, you have to live in the real world. These are the people that are best situated to fight. They know what they're doing. They, they, they're effective soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. 
That's a good counter argument. But believe me, that's going to hurt you in the long term. That's going to hurt you in the long term. If you want a Ukraine that's built on the rule of law and equality under the law and civil liberties and you want them in the European Union, you don't want these people in the state apparatus, believe me. Just to add one other example, which I think potentially tells a slightly different story. So Croatia, to me, seems like the most obvious sort of similar example to this. So Croatia, similarly to Ukraine, had an experience of being, you know, they had a nationalist movement which was against imperialism because they thought that, you know, Yugoslavia and Tito had taken away Croatian independence. So you have a Croatian um, nationalist movement in the 30s and 40s which collaborates with the Nazis because, you know, it's the the Yugoslavs who are sort of saying, oh, these are, these are, these are Nazis, they, they end up sort of saying, oh, we, you know, this is just propaganda from the other side. They don't deal with their far-right problem that they had in the same way that, say, as you say, it wasn't complete, but Nazism is a taboo in Germany in the way that it's, it's mm. clearly not in, in some way like, well, parts of the Ukrainian establishment at this period in time. So in Croatia, you had that when they were fighting off Serbia for independence, the Serbians always called them Nazis. And there were some... Nazi groups within the Croatian resistance. But ultimately, Croatia won independence, joined the EU. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know that much about domestic Croatian politics right now. I'm sure there is a, you know, I would imagine there is a reasonably successful far right, but it's definitely not a far right state. And so I, I think you could potentially make the argument that in Croatia, the government forces allied with the far right, and that didn't necessarily toxify the whole thing. And they ended up getting independence. And then they dealt with the Nazi problem afterwards. It's presumably easier to deal with a Nazi problem when you're not being invaded by a neighbor. Yes, there's two things. I'd say, firstly, you're right. The variable of Russia as this powerful other is somewhat different to Croatia. Secondly, Michael, if you look at the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, Hungary, you know, we, we don't really know. I mean, already they're already breaking norms that aren't meant to be acceptable in the European Union. Hungary, Poland, Hungary is the real sort of is the real poster boy of, of, of illiberal democracy in the European Union under, uh, under Viktor Orban. And the, the, the sort of the presumption after 1989 was they've, they've shed the burden of actually existing socialism. Now they're going to become liberal cosmopolitans and so on and so forth. And actually what we've seen is something radically different, whether that's Duda in Poland or whether that's Orban in Hungary. And they are part of broader movements. And it's a similar thing, by the way, in Russia. Right-wing ultranationalism in Russia has become a very powerful force. I think it's, it's got relative consensus among the Russian establishment, it seems. We don't really know how that story ends, Michael. Yes, all these countries have joined the European Union since the mid-2000s, massively expands you know, the Visegrad countries after, what, 2004, 2006. We, we don't know where it ends. You know, the, the commitment to tolerant, liberal, democratic norms hasn't been entirely tested just yet. And actually, the likes of Hungary have failed repeatedly in recent years. So the idea that, oh, you know, they're, they're not going to succumb to the far right, I wouldn't be so sure. You know, Jobbik until several years ago, like I say, the second biggest party in Hungary, Golden Dawn style politics, neo-Nazis, that, that is not in the past, Michael. These things are always, these things are always there in the background. And I think to say, well, that's never returning to Europe, I think is mistaken, particularly in somewhere like Hungary. And maybe Croatia too. I'm less fam familiar with its politics. And I think Ukraine, Croatia is a smaller country. Ukraine is 35 to 40 million people, geographically massive. You know, it's a hugely, it could potentially be a hugely powerful geopolitical player. And I think the kind of state apparatus you want to build isn't one with these people in it. And I think the, the example of Croatia, it's interesting. I mean, I would point instead to Hungary. 
Imagine if you got a figure like Orban in a, in, a, in, a, in a more militarily, politically assertive Ukraine, and it was in the European Union. I don't think that's politically manageable. I might be wrong. I'm a bit less optimistic than you, however. I'm not optimistic. I'm just saying I feel like if I, I understand the argument to say the big fish we've got to fry now is that we're being invaded. So we can't, we, we need a coalition as big as possible because we need everyone to fight sure. like the Russians. And, and we'll deal with that problem sure. later. I've got one, one final comparison which just came to me. It's getting quite late, but I feel like this one is potentially useful. <laughs> is telling the Ukrainians they need to deal with their far right now a bit like telling the Palestinians they need to sort out Hamas now before they can legitimately resist the Israelis. Like, no, I think a Palestinian would say to you, look, the big problem here is we're being occupied by a foreign government. Give us independence. Then we'll sort out, you know, having a, a secular democratic society. But it's not for us to deal with Hamas now. Shut up. The issue is Israel. I feel like as a Ukrainian, you could say something very similar about the Azov Battalion. Shut up. The issue is, is Russia, right? Which obviously I, I think we should be able to talk about Hamas. We should be able to talk about Michael. Azov Battalion. But I think you, you still get to have unconditional solidarity with the movement that's that's going for for independence and not necessarily judge them for having uncomfortable connections with uh, people we might find distasteful. There's a huge difference. It's not about distasteful, and you're right. In a war, I think personally, Michael, we're not having a conversation in this country about the kinds of people we're arming, including the Azov Battalion. I, that's what I'm asking for. I'm not saying you don't fund Ukraine, send resources there. I think be under no illusions. And I think right now, British civil society is operating under a few illusions. The comparison to Palestine is interesting. The reason why the likes of Hamas are so powerful in the Palestinian liberation struggle, Michael, is because Israel has assassinated every Democrat in the country over decades. That's why it's taken that turn. And so I think that's a bit of an unfair mischaracterization of, of the Palestinian struggle. Secondly, in the last 80 years, we have had nation states in Europe with the politics of Azov killing millions of people. And so I do take it quite seriously. And I think, well, if there was, if there was a political formation like Hamas, which 80 years ago had tried to conquer the entirety of Europe and, and catalyze the war, which led to tens of millions of deaths, yes, I would take that criticism a little bit more seriously, but we don't. So I think that comparison to Israel-Palestine, interesting. I think it's a bit clarifying, but I don't think it's the, 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 the killer in the argument I'm making, no. We will wrap up there. I suppose one issue I imagine we are going to come back to is, is an issue here which is less morally complex is if we have a problem of people who are on the far right in other countries going to Ukraine, getting trained and then coming back, that's a terrible thing. We, we, we want our government to be stopping far right people going to fight in Ukraine because that is going to create some enormous and terrible blowback, right? So I feel like that's a, that's a, a point over which we, you know, we don't need to have much disagreement. Let's wrap up there. Very interesting discussions tonight, Aaron. Thank you very much. Michael, my pleasure. Have a good weekend. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.